Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome to another edition of Church at Its Worst. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. While you're doing that, I'm going to make the same public service announcement I've made several times. Uh, This is not a sermon for young children. So parents, if you usually watch this with your kids, please preview it ahead of time. Make sure you're okay with the content. Read the first beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Just again, it's totally your decision, obviously, on what your kids see, what your kids hear. Uh, But please preview this ahead of time. So assuming you've done that and you're still with me, remember we're going going through this section where Paul is answering questions. I told you that 1 Corinthians actually is Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. He'd written them a letter, they'd written him a letter back, and they'd ask some questions, they'd pose some things. That's why back in uh, chapter 6, verse 12, you have these things in quotes. I have the right to do anything, quote unquote, you say. That's something they've written to him and he's responding. And we're going to see that same thing today. Now, you need to remember the sermon from two weeks ago because Paul is going to reference some of the things he said. So if you haven't watched the one from two weeks ago on the end of chapter six, it would be great to do that or this one isn't going to make as much sense because Paul is making some connections there. But basically what you need to know is the, Paul's conclusion, his main point, of the end of chapter six is in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is the word porneia. And I told you that porn, it's root, appears over 50 times in the New Testament. And it's always bad. And porneia is any sex outside of marriage. And marriage is one man and one woman. And it's a, a legally binding contract in the Roman world. So one man, one woman married any sex outside of that, it doesn't matter with who, when, how, anything outside of that is porneia. And I told you it's, it's almost more a legal term than a moral term. It has to do with inheritance. Again, you can go back and watch the old sermon and see all those things. But Paul says to flee that, get away from porneia, get away from any sex outside of marriage. Now, the obvious question then is, okay, so what about the one man and the one woman who are married? What about them having sex? And so Paul is going to move on into that by answering another one of their questions. So follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're just going to read the first seven verses, the, the first paragraph, basically, his first argument. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So, This begins, again, as you notice, same as our last section did, with a quote. And Paul even tells us at this point that that they wrote him about this. Now, about what you wrote me, quote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. Or literally what they say is it's good for a man not even to touch a woman. 
And Paul does the same thing here that he did in the last time. Because if you remember way back when we we sort of did the intro and talked about the first few chapters of Corinth, the church at Corinth is terribly, terribly divided. They have cliques. They have people saying, oh, I follow this guy. No, I follow that guy. I believe this. No, I believe that. There's, There's just terrible division in the church. So when they asked Paul this question back in chapter six, verse 12, I have the right to do anything and food for the stomach and the stomach for food. They're basically saying, you know, what's the big deal about sex? It's just a body. It's going to die. Your soul's going to go to heaven. Who cares what you do with your body? And did you notice that Paul didn't contradict them? Like, if you said to me, I have the right to do anything, Jeff, my response to you would be, no, no, you don't. Oh, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. What's the big deal? Right? And my response would be, no, that's not true at all. He doesn't do that, remember? He just kind of lets the question sit there and he tacks on some questions. Kind of like, well, what about this? I have the right to do anything. Well, okay, but you, you have the right to jump off a bridge, but I don't think you would. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Well, okay, but you wouldn't eat wood chips, would you? Right? He doesn't directly contradict them. I think because this church is so divisive. Like if he directly said, you've got this group of people saying, oh, sex is no big deal, right? If he directly contradicts them, like that's going to continue to divide them. They're already terribly divisive. So he kind of eases into it. Now, as we said last week, wow, he gets incredibly strong and incredibly direct, but he doesn't start that way. And he does the same thing here. If you had said to me, you know, oh yeah, no, people, should, you should never touch anyone. No one should ever have sex. I would just contradict you. I'd say, no, that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. That's not right. Paul, he knows this church. He's a little more sneaky. He's a little more clever. He says to them in verse two, instead of saying, no, that's wrong, he says, well, but since sexual immorality is occurring, or what he literally says is, but because of porneia. So he's referencing what we talked about two weeks ago, what he just wrote about, porneia. Now, we got to stop here, pause for a minute, and just remind ourselves of how people in Paul's world made arguments. And if you've heard this before and you, you've got it, my apologies, zone out for a couple minutes. But in our world, when we make an argument, we're linear. Point one, point two, point three, conclusion. Boom, 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 boom. That, you, you have to argue that way. If you wrote a paper that had point one, point two, here's some more about point one. Here's some more about point two. Here's point three. Here's something else about point one. Right? Your teacher's like, no, no. Put everything in this group together, everything. You got to make one solid, good, linear argument. It's like an arrow. You just want to drive towards your conclusion. That is not how these people argued. They're in an oral culture. They, 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 for in many cases, people don't know how to read. They tend to be way more repetitive than we are. And if you, you've heard me talk about it, instead of going from here to here like this, like we do, they would go like this. I, I call it looping, right? They would go forward and then they'd come back and then they'd go forward and then they'd come back and then they'd go forward and they'd come back. And so they're constantly in the middle of an argument. They're referencing back to what they said before and they're signaling what they're gonna talk about next. They're reaching forward. So this is the main argument, but they're, they're going forward and they're going back and then they're making their argument and they're going to the next argument and they go back and then maybe they go forward and then they make their argument. Like, it's not the way we argue, but you have to read it that way to understand what Paul is saying. When, he, when they say, yo, no one should touch anyone, no one should ever have sex, Paul says, well, okay, um, but remember porneia. He's reaching back to the last section. He's like, remember what we talked about before, 
Remember that sex outside of marriage is so bad. And so he goes on to say, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. Each woman should with her own husband. Now, those are commands. Like we write it, we translate it as a husband should, a man should. Because Paul's doing something we can't do in our language. He's giving a command to people who aren't there. So if I, you know, in the middle of a church service, I'm like, hey, Tim, do this. The assumption is Tim's there in the room. If I said in the middle of a service, hey, Tim, do this, and Tim wasn't there, then somebody would say to me, Jeff, Tim's not here. You can't order someone who's not there to do something. But in Paul's language, you can You can say these sort of generic commands to groups and people who aren't there. So like if you remember the famous case of Marie Antoinette, when she was told that there was no food for the peasants, there was no bread, her comment was, let them eat cake. And what she was making is a command. Now, there's no peasants in a room. She's not speaking to them. She's saying to that, that, that group out there of peasants, do this. And that's what Paul's doing. This is a command. Remember porneia, Paul says. Because of that, each man must be sleeping with his wife. Each woman must be sleeping with her husband. And then he goes on again, verse three, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Marital duty, though the word means a debt, an obligation. Like they've said, we shouldn't, you know, just no sex. No, like man should not even touch a woman. And he, he hasn't contradicted them right away, but he said, hey, remember what we talked about porneia? Right? Because of that, yes, a husband should be sleeping with his wife. In fact, it's commanded. A wife should be sleeping with her husband. In fact, it's commanded. It's an obligation. It's a duty. And again, he's commanding it. You have a duty to sleep with your wife. You have a duty, wives, to sleep with her husband. Now look at that. They've said no sex at all. And in just a few sentences, he's said back to them without even like directly just saying, no, that's not true. He said back to them four times, absolutely, you must have sex in marriage. It's required. It's a command. Husbands, you must be sleeping with your wives. Wives, you must be sleeping with your husbands. Husbands, you have an obligation to be sleeping with your wives. Wives, you have an obligation to be sleeping with your husbands. Four times he has told them, absolutely, you must be having sex. Why? Verse four. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. You know, remember, he's told us right at the beginning, remember porneia. Think back to my previous argument. What did Paul tell us in porneia? Look back in chapter two at verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. You know, Paul says, look, when, when you're married, when you're, you're sleeping together, you become one new entity. You become one new body. You unite yourself to someone. So Elizabeth and I met in college and we got engaged when I graduated, but she still had one year of school left. So I went off, I had a job. Um, and in my new life, I had a bank account. I opened a bank account and the bank account had a name on it that was Jeff Jansen. The bank account was owned by Jeff Jansen. There was one person who could take money out. That was Jeff Jansen. End of that year, we came together. We got married. I was transferred with my job. We went to a new city. In that new city, we opened a bank account. So we still had one bank account, but the bank account had two names on it. Jeff Jansen, Elizabeth Jansen. Now there's two people that can take money out of that account. It used to be, before I was married, I had one bank account and everything in it was just mine. 
But after I got married, I still only had one bank account, but it wasn't all mine. Paul's saying that's true of our, our very bodies, that there's no longer a Jeff body and an Elizabeth body. There's a Jeff and Elizabeth body. There's this one body. And I can't just make decisions about that. It'd be like me going to our joint bank account and I just take out a ton of money and do what I want with it. It's not just my money. It's her money as well. Any of you who are married and have joint bank accounts, no, you got to talk about that. What are your rules going to be? How, how are you going to handle this? How are you both going to have access to that money? Because it belongs to both of you. And Paul says that that's your very body in marriage. You no longer have sole control over it. There's joint control, just like in my joint bank account. And so in verse 5, this is where Paul makes his conclusion. Because remember, I told you, when ancient authors write, right, they're often reaching forward, they're often reaching back. For us, we drive to our conclusion, and the conclusion is the last thing we say. Therefore, your honor, I shall prove such and such is guilty, right? Boom. That's where we're going. That's not where these guys go. Their conclusion is often somewhere in the middle, because they're not going to drive that way. They're going to drive into a conclusion, and then they're going to come back out and say some more about it. And it, it, it sounds odd and repetitive to us, but here's Paul's conclusion. The very first, verse, the very first words in verse 5, do not deprive each other. That word deprive literally means rob. Do not rob each other. If, if I have a joint bank account with Elizabeth, and I go and take all the money out, I'm robbing her because it's her money too. And Paul says, that's what's true of your very body in sex. You, you, I don't have a, just a Jeff body and I decide whatever I do and she doesn't have an Elizabeth body and she decides whatever she wants. We have a Jeff and Elizabeth body. It's joint. We have to make joint decisions. I can't just make unilateral decisions. And Paul here is specifically talking about deciding not to have sex. I can't do that. I can't just decide, nope, we're not going to have sex. Because that joint Jeff and Elizabeth body, it belongs to both of us. She has a say in it as well. And she can't just decide, nope, we're not going to have sex. Because it's a joint Jeff and Elizabeth body. Don't rob each other, Paul says. Now, he's specifically talking in the depriving sense, meaning you're not having sex. But, but I do think it is somewhat broader than that, that the same thing would be true if I make all the decisions about sex. Here's when we're going to have sex. Here's how it's going to work. Here's what's going to happen, right? I decide. I can't do that because it's a joint body. It's a Jeff and Elizabeth body. And Elizabeth can't decide that. Just like she can't say, hey, we're not gonna have sex, I've decided. She can't say, this is the way sex is gonna work. So me this and this and this, because I've decided. It's a joint body, Paul says. And so he says to them, do not deprive each other. And do you notice, that's a command that makes sense in us because we have it in English. His first commands have been these general sort of third person. You know how you can kind of, you know, you, you worry about someone who talks about themselves in the third person. Oh, you know, Jeff, what'd you think of your sermon? Well, Jeff thinks that sermon was a little long and perhaps he could have been a little tighter, right? He's been kind of doing that. He's, he's been speaking, saying, husbands out there, all of you, listen, this is what you need to do. Wives out there, listen, this is what you need to do. Now he's turning and he's speaking directly to the Corinthians. You, Corinthians, listen to me. You, stop robbing each other. Stop depriving each other. You can't just make unilateral decisions about your joint body. 
Just like in that joint bank account. Sometimes I have to yield to my wife. Sometimes she has to yield to me. We have to make decisions. We have to compromise. The same is true in our sex life. We have to yield to one another. We have to discuss it together. We have to make joint decisions. Now think about how Paul has argued this. Do you see what I mean about kind of his cleverness? They've said to him, all sex is bad. Right? Which kind of would go with what he said before. He said that, you know, porneia, any sex outside of marriage, right? One man, one woman married. Other than that, everything is wrong. You can't do any of it ever as a Christian. And they're kind of saying, yeah, absolutely, sex is wrong. Just stay away from it. No one can touch each other. And rather than just confront them and say, no, that's not right, he sort of snuck it in. He sort of said, well, okay, but remember porneia, because of porneia, actually, you must be having sex with your spouse. It's a command. He says that four times. He makes that command four times. You must be having sex with your spouse. Why? Because sex unites two people. Because you've got one body. Remember what? Remember porneia? Right? A man and a woman come together. They're united. It's not the marriage ceremony that unites them. It's sleeping together that unites them. When you sleep together, you are united. You take your two individual bodies. Now you've made one new body. And so you need to make those decisions together. And if you're not doing that, Paul says, then you're robbing each other. And he just flat out says, don't do that. Stop it. Stop robbing each other. Stop making unilateral decisions. Now, obviously, there's a caveat to that. right? If Paul's saying stop robbing each other, stop depriving one another, Well, what if we both agree, right? What if Elizabeth and I have a huge fight and I'm like, forget it, I am never sleeping with you again. And she's like, well, good, because I'm not either. And we go off to our separate bedrooms, right? But we've agreed. Okay, really, probably no. We've probably both just made a unilateral statement. But but for the sake of argument, right? We've agreed that we are not sleeping together and we come to Paul and we're like, well, nope, you know, we're not depriving each other, we're not robbing each other. We agreed we're gonna do this. Notice what Paul says, because I think this is so, so clever. Verse five, do not deprive each other, except perhaps, like he's very careful to that perhaps is strong. He's very careful to say, well, okay, this is possible. He's going to do that at the end also. He's going to say, yes, you could do this, right? It is possible. I don't think he would recommend it, except perhaps by mutual consent. So you absolutely both have to agree. If you're going to stop having sex, you absolutely both have to agree. For a time, you can't just decide, oh, forget it. I'm never sleeping with you again. No, you set a time. If you're not not going to do that, okay, but you need to set a specific time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. I love that. All right. Okay, fine. You don't ever want to sleep. You're married, but you don't want to sleep together again. Well, then you should be praying. You should be taking all that time that you used to spend sleeping with one another and you should be praying. You should be bringing all of that to God. And listen to what he says next. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That word self-control, so interesting. There's only one other place in all of scripture that it appears and it figuratively means self-control control. It has the idea of that you're not consistent. So you might lack self-control. You might lack will. You might lack discipline. You might lack integrity. The thing is that you, you don't have something. You're not consistent internally. That's its figurative meaning because its literal meaning is 
unmixed. Paul says, if, if you want to, you can, right? Perhaps. If you want to not sleep together, okay, if you both agree to it, if you set a time limit, it can't just be indeterminate or, you know, I'm mad, we're not going to do this. You got to have a time limit and you need to be talking to God about that. You need to be devoting yourself to prayer. If you decide to do that, then you absolutely, after that, need to come back together. Lest Satan tempt you because you're unmixed. Vic, do you ever feel like you and your spouse are oil and water? You just don't mix. You just, you just separate. You know, it's like you're going to make the salad dressing. It's oil and vinegar, right? And you want to you wanna have just one thing. And so you, you pour them together. What do you have to do? You got to mix it. You got to mix it like crazy. What happens if you don't mix it? You pour it out. You, you just get oil. All the vinegar's at the bottom. Like Paul's saying that's what marriage is like. If you are not having sex, you're unmixed. Like sex not only unites you, it not only makes you one flesh, it, it mixes you. It keeps you united. Because we all know in this terrible fallen world how easy it is to just be pulled apart. How easy it is. How many marriages just drift apart. They find one day they have nothing in common. They find one day they're not connected. They find they're not mixed because they're oil and water. Like this word mixed, that's what it means. It means to pour two liquids together and mix it. And Paul says, if you're not sleeping together, then you're going to become unmixed. You're going to separate. And when you separate, oh, Satan is going to come after you because he loves that. God puts you together and sex mixes you. So you're not just, you know, oil and vinegar. You're mixed. You're something good. You know, if you have oil at the top and vinegar at the bottom, that's not a good salad dressing. But if they're mixed, it's wonderful. Sex mixes us in marriage. It brings us together. It keeps us together. But when we stop having sex, then the natural flow of the world pulls us apart. The evil one sees that and he gets into that break and he just tries to push us apart because that's what he wants. He doesn't want us mixed. That's what God wants. He doesn't want us coming together and being mixed together and being one body. He wants us to be divided. He wants us to be separated and alone. He wants to drive us apart. Paul says, watch out. If you're not sleeping together, you're going to become unmixed. You're going to separate. You're going to go back into being oil and water. You're not going to be mixed. And then listen to what he says right after that. Verse six, I say this is a concession, not as a command. So again, he started it with, you know, st- stop depriving each other. Stop robbing each other. You need to be sleeping together, right? Okay, if you're not going to, here are the conditions. And boy, you better be praying during that time because you are becoming unmixed that whole time and Satan is coming after you. And then again, he says, look, I'm not recommending this. I'm saying you are allowed to do this. I am not saying that you should be or that it is a command. He puts that right at the beginning. Perhaps, maybe, for for under these conditions, for these reasons, in this way, and again at the end. Like, I'm not telling you to do this. I'm saying you can. It's not wrong if you choose to. Like, he's so careful. Because what happens? We become unmixed. Because we're oil and water. 
And it's sex that stirs that and keeps that together. And this is how he finishes in verse seven. I wish that all of you were as I am. Now that verse drives everyone crazy. Paul, what are you talking about? You just told us how terrible it was not to have sex with anyone who's not your spouse, right? That's the whole second half of chapter six. You just pound on that over and over again. Flee sexual morality, flee porneia, right? There's very little in scripture we're told to flee. Most things we're told either to endure, right? Or to oppose. There's only a couple things in scripture that we're told to flee. But porneia, sex with someone who's not your spouse, one man, one woman married, right? Run away from that. Scripture says, Paul, you just told us that. Now you've just hammered on the fact that in marriage, we must be having sex. It's a command. You said it over and over again, right? You told us, you must be having sex. You must be having sex. You must be having sex. You must be having sex four times. And then you told us, don't stop having sex, right? Here's what's going to happen when you do. And then you turn around and you're like, oh, but it would be great if you're all like me. Because what's Paul? He tells us in the next verse, he's unmarried. He's not having sex. And they know that. He lived in Corinth for a year and a half. They know he's unmarried. Like, people read this. And because we think the conclusion is at the bottom, this is why Paul gets a bum rap about sex. This is why people think Paul says sex is bad. Why the scriptures say sex is bad. Don't read it like a 20th century American. Read it like a first century ancient reader. How do people speak? What do they do? They reach back and they reach forward. They signal what they're going to tell you next. This sentence, I wish you all were the way I am. I wish you all were unmarried. It has nothing to do with the argument he just made. He's pointing forward. What's the next topic that Paul speaks about going to be? It's going to be about being unmarried. What's he going to say? No, he's going to say it's fine. It's even good. Now, that's a remarkable statement. In the Roman world, you had to be married. It was the law. We'll talk about all this next week when we get get into this passage. But to say that being unmarried is good is a very controversial thing to say. He's not talking about what he just said. He's signaling what's coming next. And sure enough, what's the next verse? Verse eight. Now to the unmarried, right? This is what I say. It's good for them to stay unmarried just like me. He's reached back at the beginning. Remember Pornea, think about what we talked about. Now he's signaling what he's gonna say at the end, but he's not done with his argument. That's the way they write. They reach back, they signal forward. His argument ends at the end of verse seven, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So Paul's telling us, hey, I'm unmarried. That's a gift from God. To be unmarried, which means he's celibate. Because if he's not married, he can't have sex. Porneia, any sex with someone who's not your spouse. Paul and I'm a spouse. He's celibate. There is a gift of being unmarried and being celibate. <laughs> but there's also another gift, Paul says. One has this gift, another has this. Well, what's the other gift then? What's the contrary to being unmarried and celibate? It's being married and having sex. That's a gift from God. Paul says, just like Not being married is a gift from God, just like celibacy is a gift from God. Being married, having sex regularly with your spouse, that is also God's good gift. Do you see why we say that all the time? The Bible is so pro-sex. I mean, aside from the fact that there's an erotic love poem right in the middle in the Song of Solomon. This is the sort of thing that that tells us why God is so pro-sex. It's his gift. Your marriage is a gift from God. Sex in your marriage is God's good 
gift to you. Now, it is a command. You have to do it. It's an obligation and a duty. You have to do it. If you don't do it, you're going to become unmixed and Satan's going to come at you. That's bad. It's sex that stirs you up and keeps you mixed because naturally you're going to separate. But it's a gift. It's a wonderful duty. It's a wonderful obligation. It's a command that frees you and gives you life. It's God's good gift to you. Paul says, don't deprive each other. Don't rob each other. Don't stop having sex. That's crazy. So church, all of you who are married, couples, husbands, wives, is this how you think about your marriage? Do you think about your marriage, that your marriage is a good gift from God? Because that's what Paul says. And he doesn't put any qualifiers on it. He doesn't say you who are married to Christians, right? As opposed to non-Christians. He doesn't say you who have good marriages, you who spend a lot of time. It's just, they're these two gifts from God. People who are unmarried and celibate, God will gift them for that. People who are married are gonna have sex and that's God's gift too. Do you think about your marriage that way? Your spouse is God's good gift to you. And sex with your spouse is God's good gift to you. Men, women, husbands, wives, you need to be having sex. God commands it. You need to be regularly having sex. The world is constantly trying to separate you. You got to stay mixed. You got to stay tight. And sex is part of how God does that. It is a powerful, powerful way. When you have a big fight, what do you do when you make up? You have sex. Why? Because the fight pulls you apart and the sex brings you back together. It mixes you. It glues you back into one another where you've been pulled apart into these two separate bodies. It brings you back to what you should be. No longer a Jeff body and an Elizabeth body, but a Jeff and Elizabeth body. Men, women, how are you doing? This is God's command to you. But wow, of all the commands in scripture, this is a pretty good one. But I know, just like I know the last time when I talk about porneia, I know with as many people as are watching this, some of you struggle with porneia. You struggle with sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. I'm confident that some of you struggle with this in your marriage. You're not sleeping together, though it is a command of God. So what I said to you a couple weeks ago, with with all the the passion and the fervor that I could tell you, if you are sleeping with anyone who's not your spouse, please stop. Like There's no other sin like that. No other sin do you bring Jesus in with you. Jesus is angry about that in ways he's not angry about any other sin. If you are sleeping with anyone who's not your spouse, you must stop. But if you're married and you're not sleeping with your spouse, start. It's a command. It's a good gift. Start. You know, when Paul writes here, you know, devote yourself to prayer, then come together again, what he literally says is, then be at it again. Because you need to be at it. It is God's good gift to you. Now, I get it. Like, this is hard. If you are sleeping with someone you shouldn't be sleeping with, it is hard to stop. And if you are married and you're not sleeping together, there's a reason for that. Something has happened. If you need help, please get it. There are folks in our church who are good at counseling people in marriage problems, okay? I'm not a marriage counselor. I can't help you. I will pray for you, but I can't help you sort through those problems. But I know people who can. If you need help either to stop Pornea, or to start joyfully, regularly sleeping with your spouse. Boy, 
If you contact me, I will hook you up with somebody. If you feel like you need professional help, I know a great counselor. Okay? Write me. You can see my email right here at the bottom of the screen. Write me, email me, call me, get in touch with me. I will get you in touch with people who will help you. But if you are sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, you must stop. And if you are married and not sleeping together, please start. It is God's good gift. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the good gift of our spouses. And thank you for your good gift of sex in marriage. Because I know, everyone who marries know, knows how easy it is to separate. How easy it is to become unmixed. Jesus, help us. Jesus, help us to obey your command that we be regularly sleeping with our spouses, that we be regularly having sex, that if we ever stop, it's only because we've both agreed to, it's only for a period of time, and we are gonna devote ourselves to prayer during that because Satan's coming after us. Jesus, help us. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for anyone who is in the situation of they, they don't sleep together anymore. They're, they're, they're married, but they don't sleep together because of all that has gone before. It took something to get to that point. Jesus, will you please help us? Will you please point us in the right direction? Holy Spirit, will you give us courage to change? Will you give us determination? Will you, you put people in our paths and folks to help us? This is embarrassing and this is hard. And Jesus, I pray for everyone who's listening to me that if anyone is struggling with porneia, they're sleeping with anyone they shouldn't be, that, that you will stop them and you will help them to stop. And if there's anyone listening to me who's not sleeping with their spouses, for whatever reason, that you will help them to start. And Jesus, we pray this in your name because you are our God, because marriage, sex and marriage, these are your good gifts to us. Amen.